Uh, Pentecost is actually not a uniquely Christian holiday. Uh, we've said this before at Life Church. If you've been around, you might know this. Uh, but Pentecost was actually a Jewish holiday before it was a Christian one. Uh, there's a tradition among the Jews to have a, a feast uh, for uh, the first wheat harvest, which would come 50 days after uh, the Passover. Uh, they would celebrate the first wheat harvest, and they would have a, a they would make a grain offering to the Lord, thanking Him for His provisions. And then they would, and they would call this the, the, the Shavuot. Um, they would celebrate that God has provided for them a harvest by making this sacrifice. So now, all these years later, uh, there was this Jewish tradition to do all of that. And they didn't call it Pentecost. They called it Shavuot. And then, um, and then years later, Jesus comes to earth, does his thing. You know, death, resurrection, goes, ascends to the right hand of the Father, and he says, I'm going to send you the Holy Spirit. And isn't it incredible that God's timing for sending the Holy Spirit just so happened to be on that same day, that, that, the Shavuot holiday celebration, when they would celebrate the wheat harvest. Now, you might not fully connect all those dots yet. Well, why, why does that matter? Why is that amazing? Why is that God's awesome, perfect timing? Well, I read to you a minute ago uh, from Acts chapter 2, and Peter continues his sermon. He preaches for a little while. Um, and then at the end of his sermon, in Acts chapter 2, verse 37, it says, when the crowd heard this, they were all pierced to the heart, and they said to Peter, what do we need to do uh, after we've heard this incredible teaching? And Peter replies in verse 38, repent and be baptized, each of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, this is happening on the day of the, the celebration of the wheat harvest when we would make a grain offering, right? We're celebrating the provision of God. We bring in the harvest. And he goes on, he says, for the promise for you and your children, for all who are far off. This is how we know that this promise still applies to us today. For as many as the Lord your God would call. And then with many other words, because Peter became a preacher that day, it says with many other words, he testified, he strongly urged them saying, be saved from this corrupt generation. And then, verse 41 puts the exclamation mark on this entire thing and ties it all together and we go, oh, God's timing is perfect. Because it says in verse 41, it says, those who accepted his message were baptized, and that day about 3,000 people were added to the church. So on the day that the Jews were celebrating bringing in the harvest, God sent the Holy Spirit and the very first harvest of people being saved into the kingdom of heaven happened on that very same day. So this is why we celebrate this day. Not just because it's a day where we're satisfied with having power, but it's a day where we're sent by God to go and preach the gospel and see people respond and come alive in Jesus. We don't, we don't celebrate Pentecost because of the power. We, we celebrate Pentecost because of the sending. And because of the fruit, or because of the 
harvest. This is a harvest day. This is a day we celebrate that God is still calling people into the kingdom in 2021. In in a year where we just go, well, 2020 was the worst year ever. We really need 2021 to be a good year. God, could you just finally do something amazing? And God's response is, I've been doing amazing things the entire time. I never stopped calling people into my kingdom. And on Pentecost Sunday, yes, we celebrate that the Holy Spirit was sent to give us power. We might even talk about that a little bit today, but more than any of that, we celebrate that we get to be a part of the harvest of God and that we are sent to call in the harvest of God, which is a job that I, I, I just tell you straight up, you cannot do without the power of the Holy Spirit. You, you cannot do it without the Holy Spirit, which, which is why there isn't a single New Testament conversion recorded until the day of Pentecost. There were some people who followed Jesus. There were people who hung out with him, some people who kind of had some thoughts about him. 3,000 people were saved on Pentecost Sunday. And if you're on the fence about Jesus, then I'm just going to pray that as I preach my message today that the Holy Spirit will do in your heart what he was doing on that first Pentecost Sunday of the New Testament church. And that today could be a day of coming alive and coming home into the kingdom of heaven for you as well. Amen? Amen. Well, on that note, let's stop talking about Pentecost Sunday. That sounds like a good thing to do on Pentecost Sunday. Let's just change the subject completely, right? Well, I think we'll actually tie this in uh, for us by the end of uh, the message today. I I will tell you that even though it's going to feel like I'm going to take a hard left turn and just completely change the subject, I'm actually going to preach a message to you that, that we actually need the Holy Spirit to be able to, to do what Jesus is about to tell us to do. Uh, we are continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus has been teaching us what it looks like to live in his kingdom here on earth. You know that when he teaches the disciples to pray, which we'll talk about in just a few weeks, uh, he tells us to pray that it would be on earth as it is in heaven. And the entire Sermon on the Mount really is a series of bullet points that Jesus gives us to teach us how to live on earth as it is in heaven. This is not a sermon about how to get into heaven or how to get into his kingdom. It's a sermon about how you should live practically if you are a part of his kingdom. Let's also remember that Jesus did not come to abolish the Old Testament law. He came to fulfill the law, and then he taught us how to live as free people because he fulfilled the law. And so Jesus isn't coming to lay heavy requirements and new laws on top of us. He's coming to show us what it would look like for us to live in the world. And I'm I'm saying that to you today because Jesus is coming to uh, correct a teaching like he's been doing in this kind of middle section of the Sermon on the Mount. He's really doing a lot of, of tweaking our understanding of some really bad teaching that was happening. And today is going to feel like the most practical and possibly because it's so incredibly practical, it might also feel kind of overwhelming and how in the world do I do this? I'll just give the lead away. This is where we're going to come back at the end and say this is why we need the Holy Spirit. Right? Because it's going to sound super practical, almost mundanely practical, and also annoyingly difficult and impossible at the same time. I think you'll understand what I mean. But the, 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 the teaching that Jesus was trying to correct or, or that he was bringing some, some better teaching towards can actually be found originally in Exodus chapter 21. You'll remember the last few weeks Jesus is saying things like, you've heard that it was said, and then he gives this kind of bad version of a teaching. And then he says, but I'm, I'm telling you this. And then he says, this is how I actually want you 
to live. Well, in Exodus chapter 21, verses 23 through 25, it says this, If there is an injury, then you must give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, bruise for bruise, wound for wound. That's not like a really cool bridge to a song or anything. That just is, that's, that's part of the Jewish law. If you are injured, then the, the, the return on the injury or the punishment must be equivalent to the crime. That was Jesus's, uh, the Old Testament standard rather. I guess it would have been Jesus's because he was around back then as well. Uh, and he sort of wrote the Old Testament just like he wrote the New Testament. But here's the point. In Exodus, the the idea was that if there was a crime committed, the punishment must be equivalent to the crime. And the word crime there is doing a lot of heavy lifting, by the way, because this is actually a legal matter that was being set up in, in Exodus. They were talking about when there was, when there was a, a, a law broken and there was a clear victim and a clear uh, lawbreaker, this is how you should respond. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, wound for wound, etc. But then in great uh, Jewish teacher fashion, the Jewish teachers, took this law and they twisted it. And in this case, they didn't just just twist it, they took it to an extreme. So they took a law that was meant to be for legal matters and they began to apply it to social matters. In other words, they said, instead of having this just apply to like our, our versions of court cases, let's have this issue apply to every single day life to every relationship that you have, for your social interactions. And so let's put this back into its context. Jesus is, so far, he's addressed in these six statements that he's made. He said he's addressed our hate, right? Don't, you talked about don't murder. He's, he's addressed lust and adultery. He's addressed divorce. He's addressed swearing oaths. And now he comes to address this teaching on getting even or retaliation or retribution for an action. Because the Jewish culture at this time had taken this law from Exodus and said, anytime I feel like I have been wronged by any person, I am obligated and free to get even. And so people would get even. They made it I don't know if they would call it like a sport, but it was, it was the culture. It was the language that they spoke. If, if we weren't even, then, then something wasn't right. And if you said something about me or did something against me, I'm going to try to get even with you. Do you know anybody like that who when, they're, when, when they feel like things aren't even between them and someone else, they have to work to bring the other person down so that everything can be even? Or if they're wronged, they go out of their way to retaliate or get retribution. Jesus is coming to address this issue, and, and this is still relevant today, isn't it? So again, I'm just going to tell you now, this is going to be one of those teachings that's going to seem like, but how do I do this in every case? Jesus is not interested in giving us legalism here. He's giving us examples. You can almost read these like they were Proverbs wisdom teaching on how to live in certain circumstances. He's not going to address every circumstance of your life, but that this is why we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit so that we can apply this wisdom to our unique circumstances in our life. Also, Jesus is going, he's about to offer us a teaching that is going to be so countercultural that this is why you need the Holy Spirit. Because our natural reaction to the world is not to respond the way Jesus taught us to. So in Matthew chapter 5, Starting in verse 38, 
you see Jesus address this bad teaching from Exodus. He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So everybody suddenly knows this is the teaching that Jesus is referring to. They know this teaching because the rabbis have taught them this and how to respond to it. He says, but I tell you, don't resist an evildoer. Now their ears are going to perk up. Oh, excuse me, what? Don't resist an evildoer. No, 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 that's not what my rabbi taught me. He says, on the contrary, if anyone slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other one to him also. As for the one who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let him have your coat as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to the one who asks you, and don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So this, is, this is already very, very countercultural. Again, Jesus is not coming to give us legalism or, or new laws. He's fulfilling the law. He's coming to speak against the bad version of the teaching about an eye for an eye, where it becomes our personal relationships and our social issues. So what I want to do with you today is just look at these four statements that Jesus makes and see what we can learn about how we should live filled with the Holy Spirit in 2021 in the Antelope Valley. The first thing that Jesus says is, turn the other cheek. Remember, he says, don't resist an evildoer. On the contrary, if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other one also. First things first, notice that he says, don't resist an evildoer. I'm not convinced that this is a teaching about how we should engage with fellow Christians. I think Jesus actually covers that on more than one other occasion. He says, You'll, you will be known that you're my disciples by the way you love one another. So the way Kyle and I love each other as brothers in Christ will show the world whether or not we're Christians, right? And there's probably a whole series of sermons that could be done about how we could do better at loving our fellow Christians. But already, Jesus is saying, don't resist an evildoer. So the context here is, how do you relate to someone who's not walking with Christ? Now, for clarity, that might mean someone who claims to be walking with Christ, but is actually not living according to his standard, right? So in that case, it could be the person sitting right next to you. Don't look at them if it is. (laughs) But the context is, how do we relate to an evildoer? And he says, don't resist them. And the word resist there could probably be better translated as... Don't retaliate against an evildoer. So again, he's talking about not getting back, not getting even. And then secondly, we need to understand that the, the slap is, is literal and also metaphorical. The idea of a slap, you could think of it in, in Jewish culture. We might think of it like when you see in the movies, the, you know, the, the, the gentleman takes his glove off and he hits a guy with it. It's an insult, right? And then it's also an invitation to a fight. And so that's the context that we want to think about this, uh, this idea of the slap. It might be a literal slap, but the culture and the people who heard Jesus would have understood that this was an insulting invitation to conflict. And Jesus says, don't resist an, in- an evildoer when they insultingly invite you into conflict. So whether referring to a physical slap or a verbal insight, uh, uh, side, side note, we've talked about this multiple times throughout the Sermon on the Mount. If you're being abused physically or verbally, get out and get safe. Please, right? Please do that. Jesus is, is teaching uh, pacifism, but not uh, submission to abuse. Those are two different things, 
And so let's be clear on that, but now, now we can dig back in. Jesus is saying, don't return insults for insults. So even in your getting out and getting safe, you don't, you don't need to insult or injure on the way out to safety. Don't attack in return for attack. Don't allow people's words or actions to bait you into a fight. Have you ever seen Back to the Future? The entire storyline of Back to the Future is based on the idea that Marty McFly does not know how to walk away when someone calls him chicken. That movie would have never happened if he just could walk away when someone called him chicken. Like, he would take all kinds of abuse, and then someone would go, oh, you're chicken. And then he would just stop, and then you'd hear the Back to the Future music begin, and you know, oh, no, he's about to get beat up because he can't fight. There's actually, ironically, like a lot of us Christians, because we don't know how to fight. We think we do, though, when someone insults, you know, and you've all got the one thing. You've all got the one thing that if someone says that one thing to you, right, that one thing, they say that one thing about your family, and you're like, oh, I can say whatever I want about my family, but you, no, those are my people, right? <laughs> they say that one thing about, you know, name the issue for you, and that's it. You've lost it. All of a sudden, you're in Back to the Future, and you're having a fight that you don't know how to win. Well, it turns out that Jesus uh, would say to us, as soon as you entered the fight, you've already lost, right? Well, certainly, Jesus would say, you don't need to get back at people just because they've said something to you that you don't like. Now, again, this is, does not mean that we sit silently while people abuse us. Right? But the temptation is to defend our honor or to clear our name. Have you ever uh, had one of those moments where you know somebody said something about you that wasn't true and you don't know how to keep breathing until you've corrected the record? Right? This is, this is one of my things. Like when people say something about me and I'm like, but that's not true. I just, I, everything goes black and white. It's, that's, it's injustice. I need to fix it. I need to correct the record. This is a really dangerous temptation for a preacher because now I need to like, I feel like I have to stand up here and tell you, right? And just for the record, I've never actually given in to that temptation behind the pulpit, maybe on social media once or twice. Uh, and I repent for that. But we need to make sure that we don't uh, just send back equally cutting remarks or go out of our way to correct the record. This, this happens honestly because we're, secu we're insecure in our identity. We feel like we need to set the record straight or we need to get back at people because we don't know that our identity is actually secure in Christ. Somebody says something negative to you or about you and you feel like you have to get back at them because you don't have the peace of Jesus. So, so it would be better for us if when we hear insults, we can turn the other cheek because we, we know what you said about me isn't anywhere near as weighty as what Jesus says about me. Right? So Jesus actually models this in John chapter 18. He says, uh, it says in, in John 18, 22, when Jesus had said these things, one of the officials standing by slapped Jesus. You remember, he's on trial. They slap him in the face. And, and he says, is this the way you answer the high priest? And Jesus says this, if I have spoken wrongly, give evidence about the wrong. But if rightly, why do you hit me? I love Jesus' model here. He doesn't swing back, but he does answer. Right? But he doesn't fight. He just goes, hey, uh, what was that about? I, I love that he turns the table because Jesus understands that hurting people hurt people. Right? Jesus knows 
I, I'm going to ask you, why would you, why would you behave like that? Why did you hit me? Because this isn't about me. It's not about what I said. It's about what's going on in your heart. See, this kind of wisdom that Jesus models for us is he never fights back, even unto going to the cross, was the reason why he said, Father, forgive them, because they don't even know what they're doing. And this is why Jesus models for us that it's not retaliation, it's love that will win the fight. It's not us getting even that will settle any score. It's that Jesus has already settled the score. And so we can love people because we know they would only say and do those hurtful things to us or about us. They would only attack us because they're hurting. And so what good is it if we respond to their pain by causing more pain? The lesson is just turn the other cheek because them hitting you isn't about you anyway. It's about what's going on in their own heart. If someone tries to bait you into a fight, Jesus doesn't give us to respond in kind. Again, turning the other cheek means don't fight back. It doesn't mean you have to stay in that place or keep following that person on social media or keep receiving their text messages or phone calls or keep going out to coffee with them or sitting next to them in the environment where they keep being abusive to you. You can get out of an abusive situation. You're not given permission to fight back in any other way than to love that person. Good? We're commanded to love. And then Jesus says, not just turn the other cheek, he goes on, he says, oh yeah, give, give your coat to them too. If they, if they come and they try to sue you, here's exactly what he says. If there's a person who wants to sue you and take away your shirt, let them have your coat as well. That's verse 40. So Jesus says this, simply put, he says, if you're being sued, give more than they're demanding. If someone is coming at you with an accusation and saying, oh, I'm going to take this from you, find a way to be generous to them. Have you ever given more than somebody demanded to, from you? I mean, that sounds radical. This is definitely not the, like, the, 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 the way that we live in the world, Right? The way we live in the world is, oh, you're, you're coming to sue me? Well, I'll sue you back. Oh, you lawyered up? Guess what I'm going to do? Right? Oh, you've built a case with me, against me. Maybe it's not even a legal case. You built a case against me in your group of friends and in society or, or at work, and, and you're coming to take this from me? Well, look, I'm going to give more than you asked. The, the point here is not that you become a pushover but that you return somebody trying to take from you, you return that with generosity. And we can do this if we remember that we're not citizens of this world and that our treasure is in heaven. And so if somebody wants your jacket, give them your jacket. You, it's not who you are. That doesn't define you. And obviously they need it more than you. I remember actually being with a person once and they found out that someone had stolen them, something from them. And my, my, like, black and white justice kind of vision was like, what are you going to do about it? Let's go get it back. And the, and the person just goes, they probably needed it more than I do. And then, and then they said this. They said, so I'm going to pray that they're blessed. Because obviously they're not right now. Otherwise they wouldn't be in a position to steal from me. And I was sitting, like the gears in my brain were breaking. 
It was so counter to the way that I thought and viewed the world, right? Wait, you're going to pray a blessing for the person that just stole from you? Yeah, because hurting people hurt people. And, and people in need take from people. And so if you see a person who's built a case against you to steal something from you or take something from you, be generous to them. Because that's, Jesus says, that's what love would look like. Dallas Willard, in his book, The Divine Conspiracy, wrote about Christians being ready to honor. Uh, he, he says, Christians in this sort of circumstance will, consist, will consistently or conscientiously try to help, as is appropriate, those people who win legal cases against them in court. Or they will meet someone about to sue them and in the spirit of love may even give them more than they are about to sue for. They are, after all, deeply interested in what the other person needs and are prepared to help that person as much as they can. The, the, the point that Jesus is making and that Dallas Willard is making here is that when someone comes against you as an adversary, you refuse to agree with them. You want to become an adversary and take something from me? Well, I just disagree that we're adversaries. How can I help you get what you want? And it's in this moment that the gears in their brain will begin to break like mine did that day, and they'll go, what in the world is wrong with you? And, and then you get, to, you get to tell them that it's because you love them. And, and then the, the black and white brain will go to the next uh, iteration of questions and say, but what if I'm innocent? Right? What if, what if I'm being wrongly sued? Right? What if I'm being wrongly accused of, of whatever? Well, the answer is that Jesus doesn't actually make a distinction about guilt or innocence in his statement. He doesn't say if someone's coming to sue you and you did it. He, he says if someone comes to sue you and they want your shirt, give them your coat. He simply says give more than what's demanded. The lesson, the subtext here is don't be so attached to your stuff that you can't love somebody. Even if they've made themselves an adversary. So this is the attitude that Jesus wants, to, wants us to have. When someone wants to take something from you, give more than they asked. It will blow their mind, and it will give you an opportunity to love them and to show them the love of Jesus. So we turn the other cheek. We give more than what's asked. And then Jesus says, thirdly, in verse 31, he teaches us to go the extra mile, right? If anyone forces you to go one mile, he says, go with them two miles instead. Jesus is actually making a, a, a comment about what was a pretty common practice of his day. So this was, this was not in the context of what a lot of us actually think. We, we, hear, we, we hear this verse, we say this verse to people, you know, go the extra mile with somebody. We naturally put that in the context of go the extra mile to do a favor for somebody or go the extra mile for your friends and your family, right? I'll, I'll, I'll always go the extra mile for my people. And Jesus is actually not saying this in the context of your homies. He's saying this in the context of Roman occupation. You see, there was actually a Roman law at that time that allowed Roman soldiers to take a Jewish person from whatever they were doing in that moment, and they were legally given permission to require that Jewish person to walk a mile for them or with them. And, and, a, and a Roman mile at that time was about a thousand paces. And so they could actually legally require a Jew to carry their heavy backpack, their, their, all of their heavy gear for 1,000 paces. And the, and the Jewish person could do nothing about it on, outside of being punished for it. Another iteration of this is that they could then they could give a, a person, a, a Jewish person, 
a, a piece of information, like a message that needed to be delivered to a captain, uh, you know, a mile down the road. And they could say, hey, Jewish person, I'm now requiring you to carry this message. I'm going to stay, stay here at Starbucks, kick my feet up, and drink my latte. You're going to carry this message a mile down the road for me. And the Jewish person could do nothing about it. And Jesus says, rather than just going one mile, go two. Now, put yourself in these shoes. Imagine foreign occupation in the Antelope Valley. I know you have to undo some of your, like, not in America. But, like, just imagine, like, foreign occupation in the Antelope Valley for a second. And, and then they force you to deliver a message, for, and they're the enemy because they're the occupying force. And Jesus says, not only do it, do double what they asked. This isn't in the context of your friends and neighbors. This is in the context of the person you see yourself going to war with. This is in the context, by the way, of your boss. You know when your boss asks you to do that thing and you're like, I don't want to do that. That's not in my job description. Right? Jesus would say, do it twice. Double it. Double it is a funny expression in the church because uh, in Pentecostal circles, we always say, double it, Lord. Give us double portions and all that. And Jesus goes, give double submission. Give double sacrifice. Give double love. Man, it's interesting how often we actually expect the double blessing from God and we're not willing to give the double obedience. This is what Jesus is teaching us in this context. See, the lesson is not just go along with your oppressor. He's not, he's not teaching you to be fair. He's teaching you to be extravagant, right? I heard one, one preacher, uh, as I was studying for this message, I heard, heard somebody say, don't settle for fairness when instead you can offer kindness. And this is the picture, that a tired, oppressive soldier would walk by and grab a, a Jewish citizen and say, I'm forcing you to walk a mile with me. Carry my, my backpack. And that the Jewish person or the, the follower of Jesus in this context would look at them and say, you know what, let me carry it too. You must be so tired. Let me offer you this kindness. Paul talks about this in, in Romans. In chapter 12, he says, don't repay anyone evil for evil. Give careful thought to do what is honorable in everyone's eyes. If possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Friends, do not avenge yourselves. Instead, leave room for God's wrath because it is written, vengeance belongs to me. I will repay, says the Lord. So you see that oppressive person or that enemy who, who slapped you or wants to sue from you. And God says, let me handle the vengeance business. You handle the love business. In verse 20, Paul says, But if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he, has, if he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For in doing so, you will be heaping fiery coals on his head. Do not be conquered by evil, but conquer evil with good. So if you have an enemy, rather than trying to get back at them, what would it look like for you to love them? 
to actually position yourself to be a blessing for them. And we can do this if we remember that we're not fighting against our oppressors, that our fight isn't against flesh and blood. And we can do this if we remember that our king sits higher than any earthly oppressor or ruler. Jesus is bigger than your boss. And the boogeyman, according to Veggie Tales. Shout out to the church kids. All right, so the fourth thing that Jesus says is give what is asked, right? He's talking about generosity here in this fourth statement. In verse 42, he says, give to the one who asks you. Don't turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. So Jesus is telling us how to respond to requests for generosity. But the question here isn't really should we be generous. I mean, if you're a Christian, you should understand, yes, we should be the most generous. But the question that we always ask when we hear this is, where's the line, Jesus? At what point am I, it's like the disciple who came to Jesus and said, okay, but how many times do I have to forgive? And he says 70 times 70. He's teaching the lesson, just all, just always, just always forgive, right? And so we always want to know, okay, I'm going to be generous, Jesus, but, but how generous? Where's, where's the threshold of my generosity where I can look at you and you can go, good job, good and faithful servant, and I can also still have some of my things, you know? So I, I would just say that I, I think that there are actually two points of limitation in our, in our wisely walking this out. That Jesus would say, if you don't have it to give, you probably don't have to give it, Right? If someone comes to you and says, hey, can you give me, and then they fill in their need uh, that they need from you, and you don't have it, or you're not able to meet that need, then you're off the hook, right? I mean, Jesus isn't asking you to give what you don't have. He's saying give what you do have. And by the way, you'd be shocked if you became comfortable with saying, I, I can't actually give you that, but then you act like the apostles and you said, I can't give you silver and gold, but I'll give you Jesus. Be amazing the miracles that would happen if we were honest about our resources, not trying to impress people, not trying to say, oh, you know, I'm too busy right now, but we just say, let me give you what I do have. His name is Jesus, right? But if you don't have it, then you don't have to physically give what you don't physically have. But I, I think the second probably more important idea here is that we, we, we understand that the limitation here would be if it's not loving to give, then you shouldn't give. The, love is the limit. Have you, ever, have you ever heard the word enablement? If you're an enabler, if you are giving something to a person and you're giving that to them, teaches them to be lazy or teaches them to depend on you rather than depending on God, right? So like I've got a couple of kids in my house and at a certain point I, I'm loving them by giving them all of the resource and letting them live in my house rent-free and all of that, you know. There's going to be a certain point there's going to be a certain moment, not soon, I mean, they're, they're barely teenagers yet. There's going to be a certain moment years from now when it would not be loving for me anymore to say, let me just pay all your bills and meet all of your needs. It would be more loving for me to say, no. So they'll come to me and they'll say, can you, can you keep letting me live here rent free? There, there'd be a moment where it would be more loving for me to say, let me help you become mature in this area. Does it make sense? Because I don't want to enable them to stay children. My job is to help them become God-honoring adults, right? So that's a good example of what that looks like. So the, the limit is whenever giving is no longer an act of love. 
That, that would be the limit. But if giving is an act of love, so if you can evaluate the situation because you're going to be filled with the Holy Spirit and he's going to lead you and guide you in every moment and into, into all truth, right, and into love and godliness, if in that moment it would look like love to give and you have it to give, then the forces have come together and you give. And then the question is, well, what if I don't feel like it? Well, you get to deal with Jesus on that one, right? And then, and then I would just encourage you to do what Dallas Willard says at the end of every day. Just ask yourself the question, was I a disciple of Christ today? And if you can look at Jesus and say, okay, I had it to give. It would have been loving to give, but I chose not to. And you can still feel like you were a good disciple of Jesus today. As your pastor, I'd say you were wrong on the third point. And then you get to grow in that. You get to grow in that. Jesus is not going to condemn you and kick you out of heaven if you just now realize, oh, no, I had it, and I should have given it. It would have been loving, and I didn't do it. I'm a terrible person. I'm not a Christian. No one's saying that. This isn't a law. This is an invitation into freedom and into being a blessing. You understand? All right. By the way, just in case you were wondering if it's worth it, Proverbs 11:24 says, One person gives freely and gains more. Another withholds what is right only to become poor. And a generous person will be enriched. And the one who gives a drink of water himself will receive water. In other words, God says, I will take care of you as you are generous. Right? So here's what Jesus has said. He said, if you're insulted, don't retaliate. Turn the other cheek. He said, if you're being sued, don't resist. Give more than is required. If you're being forced to serve a ruler, don't resist the ruler. Serve double. And if you're being asked to give, don't hold back what you have, but be radically generous. After all, Jesus was radically generous to us, right? So if you listen to all of this, it it kind of feels like common sense, but it feels like common sense that has been completely flipped on its head and it goes against the way the world totally works, right? Again, these could be proverbs, just acts of wisdom. Instead of behaving the way the rest of the world works, this is how God wants you to work, which is so much of the tone of the Sermon on the Mount. And ultimately, Jesus is calling us to radical love and radical generosity. A love that, a, a, a love and a generosity and a kind of giving our lives away that goes counter to what the world would naturally want to offer. So we, so we, we have to remember, we are not people of this world. We are people of heaven. And so we don't play by the rules of the world. We play by the rules of heaven. And if you're sitting here and you're listening to all of this and you're going, but this makes me feel extremely vulnerable. My entire life, I have just learned how to protect myself because fill in the blank of the reason why you were victimized and I empathize with all of that and I, I recognize all of that and I, and, I, and I say Jesus sees you in the pain and your fear of all of that. And if you're sitting here thinking but turning the other cheek and giving more than what's asked and going the extra mile, all of that makes me feel weak and vulnerable, then I would say to you this is why this is the perfect Pentecost message. If, if, if thinking about your coworkers or your neighbors or your family members that you don't want to love, but you just heard that Jesus told you how to love and that you have to love them, if all of that makes you feel anxious, Jesus would say that's why this is the perfect Pentecost sermon. <clears throat> Jesus is not asking you to stop living your life so that you can make other people happy. He's inviting you to think about what extravagant love looks like 
so that other people might be able to come alive in that love. Right? And Jesus is saying to us, you need the Holy Spirit if you want to live the way I would live if I were in your shoes. So let me say this to you again. The Holy Spirit did not come to satisfy the church with signs and wonders so that we could feel good about ourselves for all of the miracles we see when we sing songs in this room. The Holy Spirit did not come just so that Sharon could stand up here and give a prophetic word on a Sunday. The Holy Spirit came so that we could have power to be sent to the world. And this is what it looks like to be radically giving and radically loving people. This is how we continue the story of Pentecost. We continue to live like this instead of how the world reacts to difficult situations and circumstances. And we love people. And then they say, why are you so weird? And we say, his name is Jesus. And then we watch people get saved. Because we're not playing by our rules, we're playing by God's. So let's wrap up with some points of prayer. If, 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 you're, if you're listening to this today and you're thinking, I don't even know if I can do any of this because I'm, I'm not walking in a relationship with Jesus, then this would be the point where we would pray. We would, we would pray a prayer like this. Jesus, come and be the king of my life. I commit to be a disciple a follower, and a student of yours. Help me to to live and engage in this world the way you would. If, If this is you today, you would say something like, Jesus, forgive me of my sins as I put my faith in you. And I commit to follow your ways. Amen. If you've been the kind of person who tries to retaliate, if, if you're listening to this sermon and it's, it's, it's convicting to you because you really wish that you hadn't just heard someone say you're not allowed to get even anymore, right? Then, then your prayer would be something like, God, forgive me of the ways that I have sought to get even. God, release me. Release me from the the feeling of of pride that I have, that I have to somehow win in my social interactions. You would, you, would, you would say, God, I release everyone who I feel like owes me something. And I commit to live like I owe every person to love them rather than getting something from them or protecting myself from them. You would say, God, I humble my heart before you today. Help me to surrender my needs for things and possessions and, and social status so that I can honor you with my life. And then if you're not living filled with the Holy Spirit and you're trying to sit here and figure out how do I change my habits so that I can live this way, then I would just say you, you need the Holy Spirit. And you would remember that Jesus had said, I will send the Holy Spirit and the promise was I will pour my Holy Spirit out on all people. So all we need to do is receive. So your prayer would be, Jesus, fill me with the Holy Spirit. I invite you to fill and lead my life. And I'll follow you. I'll follow your lead. And I'll do the miracles. The the radical ones and the ones that just look like loving my neighbor or not retaliating. Fill me, Holy Spirit.
And then finally, I would pray this blessing over you. I, I was inspired by what Paul wrote to pray over the church in Ephesus. You can find it in Ephesians chapter 3. I would pray this, Life Church, I pray that God may grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with power in your inner being through his spirit. I pray that Christ may dwell in your hearts through your faith. I pray that you, being rooted and firmly established in love, may be able to understand with all the saints what is the length and the width and the height and the depth of God's love. And I pray that you would know Christ's love that surpasses knowledge so that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. May you be blessed, Life Church, and may you be a blessing. Amen.